And welcome to the bi-weekly Industry 4.0 Community Cup podcast, sponsored by 4.0 Solutions and FullStrength.ai. I am your host, Walker D. Reynolds. Today we got Jason Bean with us. Jason is uh, very well known in the community. He is a robotics technician, a uh, electrician, a what else are you? Um, electrical engineering technologist. Electrical engineering technologist and uh, author now. This is your first book, right? First book. Yeah, you guys may have noticed I recommended Jason's book From Myth to Reality, Harnessing the Power of Industry 4.0 for Manufacturing Success. I have read through this four times now, four or five times. Um, this is an excellent introduction to digital transformation really for like the end user. The big one is for me is like when I look at, when I read this, I think give this copy, give a copy of this to all of your points of contact at your manufacturing clients. That they're the ones who should be reading this. I, I think everyone should be reading it, but that's where it's a really big asset. So that's where I target right, it. So Jason, welcome. Um, so let's just start with the book. Yep. So why did you write it? What's the... Um, so there are multiple reasons why I took the task of writing it. Um, first, during the pandemic up in Canada, we really got locked down into our houses and I needed something to fill my time. Did you write it during the pandemic? I started it during the pandemic. Um, first draft looked nothing like that. The first draft looked like a collection of articles that I would have written for my LinkedIn profile versus a book format. Okay. Um, one of the other reasons I wrote it was I was getting tired of having the same conversation at customers all the time. And it was like, going, okay, we're not getting it. Doesn't matter how often we're beating the drum. It's just mm -hmm. everybody's listening to the wrong person. It's not a solution you buy off the shelf. Right. Right. Um, you're not going to walk up to somebody and say, hey, give me a digitally transformed solution and pull it off a shelf. You know, there's, right. there's a lot of ownership on on the company themselves to fully invest and do this. Um, another reason is people have been bothering me for years to write my personal story as somebody that was diagnosed with autism, ADHD, and dyslexia at the age of 37. Um, so that being a much more personal story to me, I didn't want that to be my first book. I wanted something I could learn from. Right. And so I said, well, I like digital transformation. My job is to try to convince our clients of the value that it brings and why they need to be looking at it. So I'll write on digital transformation because I've already been writing articles. I've written articles for you know some of the industry magazines on my own LinkedIn and that. So I said, let's see if I can put it into a book. So how long have you been? So how long have you been doing digital trans? So for the audience's sake, I I know Jason fairly well. I mean we've talked quite a bit um, over the last few years. We, our paths have crossed um, when we were doing um, Factory of the Future for, you know, one of the largest automotive manufacturers in the world. Um, Jason was working with the Canadian counterpart to our customer here in the North America. He was working with the Canadian counterpart and we were keeping each other up to speed on what they were really talking about doing in Canada and what we were doing here in Kentucky. Um, so Jason and I know each other really well. He's been a member of the community for a very long time. This is our actually first time ever. One of the original. Yeah, yeah one of the original OGs. But how long have you been doing actual digital transformation? So, and, and 
the the follow-up question to that is what did you what have you learned through the process of doing digital transformation that drove you to write the book now okay i think i can phrase this properly um i think digital transformation has been going on a lot longer than we realize my first real introduction to organizational transformation which at that time wasn't deemed as digital transformation but everything we did is what digital transformation should be and that was in my early 20s when I worked at Celestica when it was the manufacturing arm of IBM. IBM sold off Celestica. I had only been there three months and I got put on a on, on the team to redesign the entire business unit. And I was there as, it was a completely cross-functional team, so we had machine operators, we had maintenance, we had engineers, we had purchasing, we had, H, like, whatever department there was, they were on that cross-functional team. And a year and a half we went through and we looked at everything that the business did and we transformed the entire so business unit. Was and this I think from that was, was really this the first start towards it? Infrastructure and operations, just infrastructure, infrastructure, just, operation, uh, hiring, training, go to market strategy, go to everything. market strategy, everything. And what was what drove that? Where where did that come from? Was it a where that came from? There were some serious deficiencies. Uh, there was the risk of losing some really major customers to the tune of about 40 million a year back in the 90s that's a serious driver okay <laughs> when you're a, get bought out as a business to an organization and they're like going okay we bought you but you're running the risk of losing a 40 million dollars worth a year of business in the early 90s that it's a lot of money when you so when you wrote this what was the what was the primary message so like I you know I have the unified namespace handbook coming yeah. out, right? The introduction to the handbook. Uh, so, it, it, and I think it ended up being three parts total, but the introduction version comes out first, right? And the goal of, the infra, of that book is what is the unified namespace? Uh, why does it matter? And how do you use it, right? It's, I'm trying to answer basically three questions I get asked all the time. Understanding that, what, what actually, you know, what actually drove you to write it and what question were you trying to answer? Um, so I work with a lot of small manufacturers and I think digital transformation is key for small to mediums. That's, they're why, the ones I think that? that have the most to gain from it. But the problem is, is most people that, in my experience that I've encountered, the owners of the small manufacturers, their time is limited. They know everything that's going on on the floor. They know their machines, their they're the first guys in the door. They know how to turn on their machines. They know how to run their machines. They know their operators. They know every aspect of their business and they're very limited on their time. And the messaging I was getting when I would talk to them was the wrong messaging around what digital transformation was and what it could be and what it meant for them. What did they think it was? They thought it was for really the big players out there. They thought it was, you know, the for the GMs, the Fords, the Teslas, the Amazons, it was like these large corporate and that 
it really wasn't something that a small to mid-sized manufacturer could A, afford to do, mm -hmm. or B, really had a need to do because they didn't see the value in it and all the solutions that were being sold were way above the price point that they could afford to invest. Right. <laughs> yeah. We were ju literally just talking about this. So Jason had came in and visited with another member of his company and, and um, you know, we spent the first hour and 40 minutes or whatever just you know, shooting the shit in the conference room. And um, we talked about a lot of things, but one of the things we talked about is like the iterative approach to digital transformation, right? You know, starting small, solving a problem, on a common infrastructure and then solving another problem on that same infrastructure and solving another problem on any same infrastructure and how that's different. That's obviously unique to the way that we used to do things, right? Um, everything used to be turnkey, standalone, the data, the function, everything is, uh, was its own silo that needed to do a specific list of things and nothing else, right? Today that's different, right? I mean, a, a, every solution we bring into our business creates data that can help make other parts of our business smarter and more effective, right? And so when you talk about the small businesses, it, you know, clients will ask the ROI, like what is the ROI of digital transformation? And it's like, and we were just talking about, nobody knows what the ROI is. You can give, you can give a, a gut feel, you can give examples based on your experiences, but do you ever actually know what the return on investment is? No. And do you even know within 50%? Probably not. You don't know timeline, you don't know what the ROI is going to be. You do know there's ROI. You just don't know exactly what it is. Why? Because the ROI for any individual organization is a function of how they leverage the value that comes from the data and information that they, that they create from this digital infrastructure. But here's a really good example of the importance of small and medium manufacturers. We have a, one client who their digital maturity score, so on a scale from zero to 100, their digital maturity score when we did their DTMA was in the high 20s, which is one of the lowest scores we ever had in a data set. So in order to get a score in the high 20s, you basically have to be a one or a two. You have to have the, one of the lowest scores across all 10 pillars. Um, that manufacturer today, after a three-year journey, is a fully digital organization. That is, every event Every, every data point and every informational point, every information model is digital. Uh, from OEE calculations to um, um, ship dates to uh, aging on their uh, accounts receivable. Fully digital, one infrastructure. One of the things that, the, the, the impact for that company is they've gone from being a $25 million um, company to a $50 million company with only adding a single asset. So they added one additional asset and they went from 25 million in revenue to 50 million in revenue. Where did that 25 million to 50 million, where did that additional 25 million in revenue come from? It came from two places. Number one, they got more efficient because they had greater insight into their operation and they were able to optimize their schedule, limit downtime, lower the number of quality issues, and they were able to get more out of the same amount of hours every day that they had been than they had been previously, okay? That's number one. But number two, and the one thing that we never took into con uh, consideration was the value add that customer, this client was gonna be able to provide their customers. So one of the things that this, our client can do that their competitors can't do 
is they can share data from their manufacturing processes in real time to the, the links in the supply chain up and downstream from them. So both their customers and their suppliers. And we, I've used this example. They have a chemical company they buy pigments from. They share data with that company in real time using the common digital infrastructure. And then the same thing with their customers. Their customers who buy their products, their customers have a value add of working with our customer is they have real-time insight into the status of their orders. And so they are able to optimize their inventory, that their customers are, just by virtue of choosing to work with this client, a value add. So they gain $25 million a year in revenue through two things, increased efficiency, but also opening themselves up to new markets based on the value add they can provide from a digital infrastructure. So I agree with you. Small and medium is absolutely where it's at, there's, but it, there's, it's, it, it's crazy uh, that they don't think it's. manufacturer that I came across and worked with up in Canada, it was a dying tool and die shop. It was dying. It was bought by three, well, I guess they're young for me now, young engineers because they're like early 30s, but they were engineers that had, two of them had worked for Tesla, one had worked for Amazon. They wanted to go back to Canada. They bought this small tool and die shop. They walked in, they transformed it. They now have three factories running and their average employment age is about 28. And wow. they've got people knocking on their door to get in. And it's a t three tool and die shops. And fundamentally what changed, right? So it, practically, what's the difference? Data, one of the guys was a data analyst from Amazon. And so he, turn, he, turning he that data into value. He knew how to take that data and make it actionable. Okay. To create actionable insights from just raw digital data events. Like they, they went through, they, up, they did a full technology update on all their machines. And that wasn't, didn't mean that they needed to change machines. They just put the right tools in the place to collect the relevant data that they needed. We, it, it, and that, on that example, we, we had this client in Pennsylvania maybe seven years ago. Um, yeah, it was like 16, 17. Um, they were a vertically integrated company, but they had a tool and die shop. Um, all Mazak CNC's. Um, and they were basically, um, well, it was Doosan and Mazak. And they were basically completely blind to their operations. They had some like digital dashboards, but it was basically like a planner was entering into a spreadsheet and then some data, you know, production data and stuff would be on a dashboard on the manufacturing floor. But a, a practical impact of digital transformation for them, we started by connecting to all their lays. I think, the, I don't know, maybe 60 of them. We integrated to their ERP to pull out their schedule. We started tracking OEE, downtime, and state on all the, the machines. Um, and we built, obviously, a unified namespace, so we had full context. Interesting thing that came out that we never considered. They, were, they would schedule how long a changeover should take place on one of their CNCs. And let's say the changeover was uh, one hour. It should take one hour to set up when they were moving from one, one tool to another, or one product to another. 
we discovered that they had one operator. I think they had something like 30 operators altogether. But they had one operator who was a master of the changeover. Like, literally doing the changeovers three times as fast as the next, clo next operator. Now, the manufacturer didn't know that. Like, they had no idea because what that operator was doing was taking that extra time that he had from doing his changeover really fast, and he was taking longer breaks. So, on paper, he was taking exact, exactly as long as was being scheduled to do his changeover. But he was doing the changeover in 30 minutes instead of an hour, and then he was taking an extra 30-minute break. When we took that data to the client and we said, well, you have an operator who knows something no one else knows. Like, either have them do all your changeovers, which obviously would be a ridiculous request, or you want to tap into that knowledge that this operator has. And they were able to reduce changeover times for all operators in half. They were able to cut changeover times for all operators in 12 months in half. That was without even optimizing schedule. That was just by visibility into the data and analyzing the data, right? I want to talk about this real thing. One of the, why, you know, I've read a lot of books on digital transformation. Most of them are either misguided, in my opinion, or poorly written, right? Yours is not. In fact, I knew that yours was going to be well written. When it, the first thing I looked at was the contents. <laughs> so the chapters in here are in, in, as follows. So chapter one is assessing digital readiness and building a strong foundation, right? So that's DTMA. Chapter two is the digital transformation of a small manufacturer. Chapter three is people, process, and cultural approach. Four, agile project management. Five, the power of storytelling, which we were talking about back there earlier. Six, the internet of things and industry four. Seven, the human element. Chapter eight, digital manufacturing roadmap. Nine, by the way, which is my favorite chapter in the book. Uh, chapter nine, overcoming obstacles, my second favorite chapter in the book. Chapter 10, collaboration and co-creation, my third favorite chapter in the book. And chapter 11, measuring success. So uh, chapter eight, nine, 10, and 11, and I said this before that what I love about your book is that if you were to leave chapter eight, nine, 10, and 11 out, and you only had chapters one through seven, this is a great introduction to digital transformation, right? Eight, nine, 10, and 11 is the stuff that people who already have experience in digital transformation are gonna find most valuable. This book works for everybody, right? It doesn't work just for people who don't know digital transformation. It's an outstanding foundational, uh, a, a representation of foundational knowledge, but then also advanced concepts. I mean, the last four chapters are all advanced concepts in digital transformation. Did you write it that way on per? I mean, were you thinking in those terms or did you just get lucky that, hey, I, I want the audience to be a, a broad group? Um, I wanted, I, I, like I said, I originally wrote it for the owners of small manufacturers. Um, the feedback I got off the uh, sample of proofreaders I got from the draft that was just before that one. Mm -hmm. One of them took a look at it and said, hey, restructure this a little. And I think you need to add a little something here at the end. All right. So okay. through having some So you had Mario Ishigawa was one of the guys. Right? Ma Matt Mario Paris, Ishigawa right? uh, did a read through. Matt did a read through. Okay. Um, those were like guys from from the community themselves. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, you pick. You ended up picking. I mean, you have 
like probably the only other person that well maybe if you threw like Rick Bellotta in there or uh, who's the one who went to high bite JS what's his name JS crap everyone needs to remember his name um, sorry it, it's a guy who went to high bite um, Schrader um, you, you didn't have Schrader read it no no yeah I mean this is an exceptionally how, how has the book been received Generally, it's been received like really, really well. I actually got my first one-star review on it last week. I still need to write your review. What was the one-star review? You got? Uh, said no answers in it. Oh, really? Um, very, very short. Uh, it should be short. And but that was the intention was to keep it short. It should be short. And by the way, eight, nine, ten, and eleven. Yeah. A lot of answers in eight, nine, ten, and eleven. Um, person did not like the use of mythology to ground stuff and try to get away from you know to make something more tangible and get away from all the buzzwords um, well the problem is here I, I agree with the, the buzzword piece but you know why buzzwords exist they bring together people who don't if, if, if I don't have it if I'm not fluent in a certain concept yeah. a buzzword is, is kind of like drawing a circle around the concept and I can use the buzzword to, to, to communicate to those around me what it is I'm talking about. If I'm not the expert, if I'm not fluent in it, it's easy for me to say things or use words that don't line up with what I'm trying to communicate. The buzzword brings us back to what it is I'm trying to communicate. Buzzwords end up running their course eventually, right? Now the issue with digital transformation, and I love this, is when I ask, actually, I'll ask you this, you know, what is digital transformation? You know, if you ask somebody, what is digital transformation in our community, any community, you're going to get a thousand different answers. Yeah. You, you really are. If you ask them, what is industry for? You're going to get yeah. a thousand different answers. When I talk to any customer, I walk in there and I say, if I've got the guys in the room, I'll walk around and I'll ask each, every one of them. And I get different answers out of all of them. And I'm like going, you can't move forward if you can't all agree. That's which is why digital transformation starts with education. Yeah. You you have to define what these what this means to you first before you can even look at anything else. So what does digital transformation mean for the average small manufacturer? I think that's gonna be dependent on what they want to accomplish with it. Do they want to be more competitive? Do they want to have a better product? Do they want to cut down waste? Like, where are they targeting that to? Right? They have to target it to, to something. Right? Um, for me, to be digitally transformed, that is really leveraging all these new technologies that are out there, all these new interconnected technologies relieving that mundane task off of people and freeing people up to do what they do best, which is create and, and, and find solutions. For me, that's, if you want to digitally transform, you want to free up that knowledge within your, your workers' head and their skill set. Digital transformation at a, at a I, I like to say it this way, at its base level, digital transformation is about creating a company where data is the primary commodity. I sell products, I sell a commodity to the market, 
But what differentiates my business is the data that we treat as a commodity within the organization to make decisions. Right? Data is something that happened and when. Information is, the, is context applied to that data. It's something we can take action on. Right? If you look at the most advanced organizations in the world, the ones who are literally killing their markets, if, there's, if you had to sum, you know, distill them down, the, their differences into one word, it's going to be enablement. The word would be enablement. Like you're enabling, you're creating a digital infrastructure that frees people up and at the same time enables them to solve the business's problems. That, you know, digital transformation starts on the plant floor. It, you know, uh, your counterpart that we were yep. talking earlier, he was talking about, you know, tribal knowledge and all the stuff that's locked in inside people's heads in your organization. Well, that doesn't do the business any good the moment that person's not there anymore, right? Digital transformation, a, a subset of digital transformation is, in his words, um, which I agree with, is codifying digital or uh, tribal knowledge, unlocking the potential inside of the human's brain and sharing that potential across the whole business, right? In one, un, un, in one common infrastructure. M major objections to the book, other than that one-star review what is the primary feedback been? Other, I mean, other primary than feedback been, has been been great. Like, uh, really, that's. Is anyone asking you to expand on it? Some have, and I am toying around with the idea of expanding on it. Um, I'm not sure what the expansion will look like because now that I've I've learned more about how to write and the whole self-publishing and the editing. If I was to start that again, it would look different than it is now. How would in, it change? In, 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 in its structuring. Okay. Like the, the topics would be the same, but there would be, um, when I look at it, I don't see a, um, I say, you know, a more consistent flow through tying the stuff in better. Some areas I would go deeper, some I might, you know, pull a little bit back from, but I think if I was to rewrite it, it, it would look different and it definitely would come out as a longer book. Have you given it to clients yet? I have given it to a few. And any, what's the feedback you've gotten from clients on the book? Um, those that have read it really liked it. Uh, it's opened up doors for me to actually talk. Is it, are they better prepared to have the conversation after reading the book? The conversation about digital transformation and starting that journey? Those that get it, yes. Um, I wish more would read it, but I don't have the marketing platform to market it. My marketing platform is, you know, my LinkedIn's right. profile. It's the community I interact with, uh, you know, so I need, you know, the people that have read it, you know, hey, if you found value, promote it. Um, Amazon's algorithm has switched on how they promote books to now that it weighs heavier on reviews versus SEO optimized keywords within a meta description or within a title or in a content. Um, so the more reviews I get, the more the better the Amazon algorithm will recommend it to people when they go on to Amazon saying, hey, I want a book on digital transformation or industry right. four um, because I'm competing against people that are publishing through publishing houses. I 
you know, it's amazing to me how poor of a quality. There was another book that came out, actually, let's say a half dozen. I've read four books on the topic over the last couple of months, over the last 90 days. One is on unified namespace, and three of them have been just digital transformation in general. Actually, two on digital transformation, one on industry four. And it is stunning to me how poorly written, or people who are not qualified to speak on the topic are writing books. Like, that definitely is, I mean, I, your, you may notice this is the only book I promoted. Yeah. There's no commercial, you and I have no relationship no. whatsoever. <laughs> I saw that you, I saw that you, I think I saw you post it on LinkedIn, the book was ready. I bought it on Amazon. I read it that night. I'm like, fuck, this is really, like, everybody should read this. Like, it's incredibly well done. I didn't review it. Or, you know, I wasn't part of the people who read it, but guys. I, in, I, I intentionally kept you out of the yeah, review loop. Right. Guys in the community who are, who are, you know, who I talk to all the time were part of Reddit. But I promote this because I think it's a great, it's an outstanding book, and I think it'll help the community. I think it'll help people who want to know more about digital transformation and industry for what I really see the value here is if I could give this book to every client before I ever had a conversation with them, right? And I could take what's in these pages and I could put that in their head. If I could figure out a way to do that, they would be better prepared to ask more meaningful and probing questions during an initial conversation about what is your plan to make data the primary commodity in your business? Yeah, there, there, are, there are two universities, like U.S. universities, that their deans read that book, and now they want me to go in and say, hey, how do we educate our engineers coming out so they can do this? Right. 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 You know, Has Rankinen reached out to you, Jeff? No, no. I don't even think he's read it. Really? So. Oh, let's make sure we get this to Dr. Rankinen. Um, yeah, this is, I mean, it's really incredibly, what I would love to see is a second book that takes what's in here and then gives example of application. Yeah. That, that was something I struggled with is anybody I reached out to for actual case studies did not want to give them to me. Yeah, it is the biggest challenge, especially from legacy companies. A, a, a bleeding edge organization, a company that started after the fourth industrial revolution is much more likely to be willing to share publicly what they've achieved via digital. But a legacy company that has done the trans, no. No, they, they're, don't, they don't want to. They're very, they don't even want you mentioned in their name. Yeah. Right, they don't even want you saying the name. Um, but I, what I think would be really valuable is if what you did was you had a, another book that has, so now chapter one is an example of assessing digital readiness, right? And th these are what the conversations which is, were like, Which right? is part of, one of the things I've got in the thought process as, as the sequel is like, when I do this, when, when, I, when I go to expand, does that require me a second revision of this that feeds into further books that go deeper or, can, or is it strong enough to stand on its own that I can directly go into books that dive deeper? I would argue that it should be a separate book, a volume two, this book stands on its own. The reason I wouldn't want this book to be any longer, I'd actually want it to be shorter. I know that you want it to be longer, but well, actually, this like, is a, this, I love short books. This is a book that I would I want to be able to place the information in this book 
inside of the client's head before I ever talk to them. Mm -hmm. And that means it needs to be shorter in order for me to do that, right? Um, so you sell, you work for a sensor manual. I don't, we didn't mention your yeah. employer, but I, um, you know, you're, you work for a sensor manufacturer, right? So, and that sensor manufacturer isn't necessarily selling digital. They're selling solutions that are part of digital, yeah. but they're not necessarily selling digital, right? How do you incorporate what you know about digital transformation? Obviously you're on the bleeding edge with digital transformation. You you look at your clients in terms of what is your overall digital strategy? What are you trying to get out of this? What is the, you know, how are you making data your primary commodity? How do you take into account that which you know about the very generic subject of digital transformation and apply that to your efforts when you are selling sensors or specking sensor equipment for your customers? So what questions do you ask? Or uh, this is still where there's a, a major challenge in this area. Um, a lot of customers, they still see sensors as commodity. I want an on-off signal. I want a distance. I want a temperature, whatever. Um, what they don't realize is now we can make these products smarter and give you additional data. So it's not about I need an on-off. It's now what other additional data do you need from your process that you can potentially get from a sensor? And right. then it's identifying the sensor that provides that data. Because if you're just looking for on, off, distance, you can get that from pretty much anybody these days. Right. Now when you're, when you're assessing smart devices, it's not the basic functionality, it's that additional functionality. And where does that value of that additional data come and do you really need it? Uh, I mean, the answer is yes. I would, I, I mean, I, I, you definitely need it. The question is the question of where does it come from? I mean, the, I, I asked this, you know, I got this board full of stuff back there, right? And if you look, you know, you've got, uh, you know, you got a free wave edge in the lower left-hand corner there. And then I've got a, uh, you know, Arduino Wi-Fi. I've got a slick 504. I'm trying to get one of these. Yeah, I actually I have one you can take with you if you want. I have a second one. I, I bought one and they sent me one as a as a travel. You can, you can take that one back if you want. If you want to play with it. Yeah, I'll gladly take it back. Um, you know, I got an Easy Logics. I got a Siemens S7 1200, Direct Logics 205, and then I've got these you know CMT SVR, Raspberry Pi, and I got a couple of other devices here. One of the things when I look at this board, I think. I've got a RTU, you know, going into a thermal couple card, mm -hmm. right, on that slick. And for what? To get temperature off of something, measure it off somewhere. Obviously, I'm probably doing ambient air. And I, the reason I had two was I actually had one measuring ambient and then one was up inside of an AC duct, and it was measuring the temperature of the air coming out of the duct. And, you know, it was, it was, I was trying to optimize... Uh, the runtime of the air conditioners in, yeah. in this specific uh, process control room. But the truth is, is that half of the, this technology on here has temperature sensors on it already, right? Uh, half of them are already tracking temperature, except it's not tracking temperature in a way where I can share the temperature reading off of that smart device 
with a digital infrastructure, right? Like, I mean, one of the things that I think all sensors should be showing us is information about the sensor, not just the measurement, but also... What's its health? Yeah, what's the health of the sensor itself? What is, what, all the important information that you get off of the tag, when, what was the lot number, when was it manufactured, where who, was who, it manufactured? Who manufactured it? Right, who manufactured All that information is nothing but text that can be stored on a chip, that can be shared to an infrastructure, yep. that sensor manufacturers in general don't, you know, they're, they're not promoting the fact that that is data and information that could be well, valuable to end users. There's a automotive that what they want to do is they want the system when they know a product's going to go release that it's going to pull the data right from that device, go right into the ERP and say, hey, you know what, this is going to fail in four to six weeks. Right. We know the lead time on this product is three. Drop the order to our vendor, get it in. Now it's now now once it's scanned into the system, nobody touching it, just you know, comes in, scanned in through RFID barcode, whatever. Right. The MES schedules it, ships it out to the line, the install instructions are right there on the operator's phone, and he knows, oh, the line's going down at ten PM. I've got to go take this, I gotta install it there, and there's my instructions. Thank you. And it never touched any, they want it, so it never touches anybody's hand until it actually goes to install. I like it. I like it a lot. In fact, there's a couple of really good examples. We have a rubber customer who does something to that effect. Um, um, they're a tier one automotive supplier and does something very similar, but it has to do with, um, you know, predicting failure of certain components on, on um, assets as opposed to the sensors themselves. Yeah. But I mean, the, the question that I have for OEMs is, what are you doing, what, what I'm always asking, what are you doing to make data the primary commodity in your business? If I'm a sensor manufacturer, for example, you know, and I sell proximity switches, and I, and I move you know, 250,000 units a year, and my total install base is 20 million, Imagine the value of the data you could collect off of 20 million sensors. If you were collecting it, you would know exactly how your customer base is using it on a, right. on a general basis, and you could walk into somebody and say, this is, these are the key things you need to know right. and you need to be tracking. The information about uh, you know, relative humidity, and, and this is the big thing. Environment, how many manufacturing facilities do you go to? It's a big one. How many manufacturing facilities do you go to where on the plant floor nothing's climate controlled? Okay. And you'll ask the question, why is it in climate controlled? And the answer is, well, the cost of a climate controlled environment isn't worth it. Okay. But imagine that in my manufacturing facility, if I were climate controlled, it lowered turnover with my employees, which obviously everybody knows that that's one of the first things it would do could retain employees longer. But what if operating in a climate controlled environment increased the lifespan of the technology we have controlling our on the plant floor, right? Which we know it does. I mean, I mean I've run this test a fucking million times. Take a PLC, run it, take it into a shower where into the into a bathroom 
where the relative humidity is 96% while you got a hot shower running. Mm -hmm. And see how long you'll be able to run that device before you have some issue. And the answer is it's not that long, only about six hours for the, for the average PLC. 96% humidity will yield some type of failure within six hours or less. Um, now, granted, it's not 96% relative humidity in a manufacturing facility, but the point is, is environment plays a role in the longevity of this technology we put on the plant floor. Well, if I'm a sensor manufacturer and I'm collecting data on the lifespan of my hardware um, over time under certain environmental conditions, doesn't it behoove me to share that information to my clients? Hey, that the optimal environmental um, conditions are this relative humidity and this ambient temperature. And as you go above, now everybody has devices rated, yep. right? Everybody but, knows what their operating temperature but, ranges are, but. But those ratings aren't about what's optimal. Those ratings are on, on what's survivable, right? It's not what is optimal. There's so many opportunities for OEMs to take, to turn the data that they have in their devices into valuable information for their customers as both direct value to the business and value add to the business. And it's drastically underutilized, in my opinion, drastically by the OEMs. And killed mainly by a lot of IT departments. Why so? And, and, yeah, I my, agree my, with you, but why so? Mike, sir. Most IT departments I run across, they don't want to let their vendors take data out of their four walls. Even if, like, because we've had Box and Evons now for how many years? Probably. Mm -hmm. Got to be like 10 at least. Yeah. Right. Secure tunnel VPN into a machine. Download a new program update, make some changes. That's been possible. But still, you can't get a lot of manufacturers that will even allow that on their floors. Yeah, it's much easier to get uh, forgiveness than it is permission in that case. Um, yeah. You know, there's still this IT, OT fight and divide. And What's the biggest challenge, in your opinion, it, for if, if what you want are for manufacturers to realize the value of the message being conveyed in this book, what is the biggest challenge or the biggest hurdle or the biggest barrier that has to be overcome in order for them to realize this value? Break down the silos. Um, they really need to break down the silos internally and externally. You've got to be, you've got to open up your data. You've got to open up that, 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 as you said, that tribal knowledge within your organization, share it, what you get from your, from your clientele, what you get from your vendors. You have to, it's, it's, it's collaboration now. Why do you think, you know, we, we joke that it has, that, that data has to go from on a need to know basis on a right to a right to know basis? Right. Um, why do you think organizations treat data on a need-to-know basis, which is where the silos come from? Well, if I could answer that one, I might make some more money. Because honestly, I still don't know where. I, I, I know that that's the reality, but I don't know where it comes from. Yeah, I, I don't know where it comes from either. I don't know what this protecting what is mine versus if I share what I know with somebody else, I might be able to s solve something. Right. You can't be innovative with a lack of knowledge. If your knowledge domain is very narrow, 
you're not going to be able to solve a problem you really right. created with that same knowledge right. domain. It's like you trying need, to... You need somebody that has, like, the more knowledge you gain, the better you are able to pr problem solve because you have different avenues of thought you can go through. It's just like, I, I, I use an analogy about depth perception that, you know, a person who's only got use of one eye will never see anything in three dimension, right? They have no depth perception if they're only looking out of one eye. And, you know, opening up data is allowing everyone to see with both eyes. It gives them depth. It gives them an additional dimension to um, learn, adjust, and react. Um, the question is, why is everybody working with just one eye closed? You know, um, I, 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 from an IT perspective, I understand where those constraints come from, right? I understand the security arguments yeah. for why you shouldn't just allow anyone to have access to some database somewhere, right? I don't think we're talking, I don't think you're talking about that type of silo. I think you're talking more about the, the operational and cultural silos that we yep. see all the time, right? And where, where do they come from? How do you make the argument? Well, actually, I, you know, the audience here, I would love to see in the comments below your opinions on where that comes from. Where, why is it data is so, is treated as something that is um, a need to know basis only? Um, I, again, because I have no idea where, I know that that's the reality. I know I see it all the time, but I don't know where it comes from. I honestly don't. Um, I never understood why it is, um, I mean, even when I was an back when I was an electrician in the very beginning of my career, you know, I wasn't an automation. I didn't have my degree in engineering yet. I mean, um, I could connect to a PLC and I could go online with a PLC and I could look at the ladder logic in real time. Um, but I wasn't a programmer. But yet, in our electrical department, the PLC programs were only where we stored those programs was only available to one person. And I never understood why I had to go to this guy, Ron, to get a copy of a PLC program. Like, why is it I wasn't able to just go look at it? When I asked Ron why, he couldn't tell me why either. It was just that's the way it was. Like, why was it a, a premium not placed on making data and information available to all potential consumers of that data and information? And organiza advanced organizations think that way. They think, oh, this is important. To make anything that you could possibly need to do your job, I need to put that in a place where you're going to be able to find it. And then the legacy organization doesn't think that way at all. No, they don't. They don't. It's, it never even occurs to them. It's a foreign concept. Yeah. Are you teaching that when you're talking to your clients? Are you talking about trying to? And how is that received? <laughs> Not well. Not well. <laughs> okay. Biggest uh -oh. challenge. The biggest challenge that manufacturers face in in their digital transformation journey as you see it themselves get out of their own way they need to get out of their own way how do they do that not be afraid to try we learn more from failing than we do from succeeding yeah amen you know don't we, i would don't, argue don't, you, you only learn from failure don't be afraid to fall it's how you get up from the fall that matters that's right 
you know, I, I took a risk of failing with that, but I had to make the choice. It's like going, do I put it out the way it is and risk the judgment and all that? Or do I keep working on this saying it's not good enough yet and never put it out? Well, let me, let me say this. It, it, so if the objection is, the ob any objection you've heard has been, it's not, there aren't enough examples or whatever, or it's, it's not, you don't go deep enough. You know what I, there's three questions that I ask when I give a keynote address or something. I want to gauge the knowledge of the people in the room that I'm talking to. And I generally will ask three questions to gauge their knowledge, okay? Now, ostensibly, when I'm going and giving a speech on digital transformation, most of the people in the room should know what digital transformation is. They're coming to listen to a speech on digital transformation. You would think that they're going to have at least an idea of what it is. I ask these three questions in every room. Number one, who here can tell me what digital transformation is? Okay. Number two, who here can tell me what Industry 4.0 is? And number three, who here can tell me where an organization should start if they want to digitally transform? Three basic questions, right? By the way, those are three questions that are all answered in this book, okay? The, you know how often nobody in the room raises their hand? Basically, every time. Yeah, I can see that. So, I've, it, I've done talks myself and nobody so if that's raises the case, a question. The audience is only ready for this. Yeah. They're not ready for... They're not ready for depth. They're not ready for depth yet. <laughs> there, there, there are a select few who are ready for depth. Correct. But you don't write a book for three people. No. Right? You have conversations with three people who want to go deeper. But the general audience isn't the, prepared. The, the general audience isn't prepared for anything deeper than that. That's right. There's digital transformation starts with education. This is another one of those educational right. components. My second book is in its first review right now with one individual for its review on first draft, and it's based on AI and large language models like and, and generative AI and things like ChatGPT and how it'll impact business mm -hmm. and, and, and its potential to impact business. And that was all based off stuff I cut out of there because I started going into the section on AI and I'm like going, this is too, way too much mm -hmm. and, it, and it needs to stand on its own. And then as I was researching that and going through that, and it's like I started digging into, like, you know, OpenAI released ChatGPT, and I started digging into that, and I'm like going, holy crap, this makes all of this very possible for everybody. Because now we have something that can take tribal knowledge and share it very easily across any division. We, we have, uh, there's a vendor partner we're working with who's got a big announcement as it relates to... Yeah, I know who you're talking right. about. So, and they, one of the things that they're doing with ChatGPT is uh, for operator inputs, they are, they're basically intercepting operator inputs on a touchscreen, mm -hmm. and they are running that operator input through a prompt to ChatGPT where ChatGPT is then formatting whatever it is the operator typed into one common language and structure. It's basically creating uniformity out of that which is never uniform, which is human communication. That's just one minor implication of how um, generative AI-like 
ChatGPT is helping to improve the types of data that we collect from human beings for manufacturers. Yeah. That's just one small, tiny example. Um, when is that book? I, I didn't even know anything about it until you just mentioned um, it. When, when, when do you anticipate that book's going to be out? I'm not quite sure because I want to see how, like I said, it's, I, I, I sent it to one person right now for an initial review of the first draft. Have you looked at custom instructions on OpenAI yet? Uh, you see that they're yeah, available? Yeah, I, I, I saw that was available and I've done some initial playing testing. with it and testing. Um, I would really like to see OpenAI increase the token limits. They, I saw they just went to 50, uh, right? It, it went from 25 every three hours to 50 every three hours. Yeah, the instructions that you can <coughs> do if you've got GPT-4, but I'm talking like the actual token limits. So oh, got that, it, got it. You know, when you're putting in a command, you know, because after however right. many words, it starts to lose track because it can't right. keep that history of the conversation. Right. Right. Um, so it's there. There are there are still very much limitations from a tool perspective as to what it can do. Yeah, and I don't. And at the end of the day, I've said this before, and I don't. I, I'm going to say it again. I don't think OpenAI wins. I mean, I, I don't think that when we, you know, I I don't think that ChatGPT will be um, the chatbot that that we all end up using. I probably I, not. Yeah, if, I, if history has anything to say with it, probably not. Yeah, I would say two things ha are going against it. Number one, you never get to truth through censorship. Yeah. And OpenAI clearly is doing some type of, you know, they're probably for good reasons, but at the end of the day, you never get to get to truth through censorship. Um, number one. Number two, Microsoft only does what's good for Microsoft. And... Um, and therefore, they will, just like they did with the OPC Foundation, they will steer OpenAI in a direction that I think will not appeal to the broad market. So I think it's definitely going to be some other chatbot that it, becomes the it standard. It might but, be Claude 2. Right. But I, up in Canada, I don't have access to it, so I haven't been able to test it to see how they compare. But OpenAI, ChatGPT is still the furthest ahead. They, oh, by, yeah. by far right now from what I see, they are the furthest ahead. They're going to lay the groundwork for whatever it is going to be. They're there. also going to make the mistakes everyone learns from, yeah. too. Yep. Yeah. First, one, first one out always does. Yeah. And the question is, will they, will they adjust accordingly? I, I mean, we, we live in such a like, super exciting time. Like in our industry, the, the potential for all the technology we have available to us right now if used effectively and synergistically with one another. Things I wanted to see 20 years ago it's are crazy. finally coming around It's now. crazy. It really is crazy. It, it's nuts, honestly. It, all right. What do you have coming up? The next, uh, what does the next year look like for Jason Bean? Other than obviously you're going to finish your AI book. Um, so the AI book is the next thing on, on the docket. Um, I also decided I would try to tackle something a little more unique is to see if I can actually write novels for my daughters. Okay. So I got one daughter that likes historical fiction, another one that likes fantasy. And I started diving into going, okay, can I actually write a real story and write something that I can give as a gift to my kids? Right? Okay. Um, that is one hell of a task. Do you uh, do you use ChatGPT to help you with writing at all? Um, I 
have started to use it to help me improve. Okay. Like um, do with outlines or... So... Here, here's what I do. What I do is I have trained ChatGPT on the way I write. Yeah. So... Which is the same thing I, I've, I've done now. I've, I've trained it on the way that I've, I, I write. And then I said, this is the way I want to write. Make, help me de develop a program to get from here to here. Yeah, what I do is I, I have, um, I think it's maybe 1,200 lines of my writing. It's on a web page. Mm -hmm. And then I feed that link into a ChatGPT chatbot. And I say, I use Link Reader, I think, is the plugin. And I'm I use. using Ask Your PDF. Right. So then I, I go say, go to this sample of my writing. Yeah. And then I want you, here is what I've written so far. Here is the subject of this chapter or these series of paragraphs. And what I want you to do is I want you to make recommendations on how I should adjust my, this writing, what I wrote. I want you to make recommendations on how I should edit it for clarity. Yeah. And, and the advantage of doing that is it always makes the recommendation in my voice at least. So when I look at it, it's, it's literally somebody who knows how I write telling me, oh, maybe you should try and word it this way. Yeah. Or word it that way. Yeah. So, like through 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 my research, I found out there are methodologies that novelists use to write, you know, like the three act structure, the four yeah. act structure, their hero's journey. These are things I didn't know before. Yeah. Right. And I had I, I converted that into a PDF, fed it into ChatGPT along with a number of my articles, and I had ChatGPT assess it and say, tell and recommend me like saying how. Like if I wanted to write another book, are there any method, known methodologies out there that I should look at in utilizing yeah. and helping to structure my book? And it went through it and it said, oh, I would recommend based on your writing style and how you write that you use a combination between the three-act methodology and the hero's journey. And yep. I was like, going, okay, well, what does that look like? And it laid it out for me. Gave me an outline. It gave me an, uh, an outline, and it says, well, what you would do is you do, do this, 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 this. And then I, you know, I also told her, I said, well, I said, okay, although I'm autistic and I can focus down on things really well, my ADD, I may be focused on this, but I tend to jump within that domain all the time. I said, can you help me figure out a way to keep myself more focused when I'm writing without all the jumping? And yeah, it like it looked at the, my writing it looked at the methodology it looked at what it knew about ADD and and autism and it actually said you know laid out a structure for me and it said okay you know you're you should write for x amount of t time this is the way because that you because you jump this is the way you should map out rather than mapping out from the beginning to the end it's like going map out from the end to the beginning and then you're going to map out each individual tiny sections to make sure that they all continue to tie together to what you want to achieve. So is writing a thing that you're, uh, I, I mean, it sounds like writing is something you plan on doing a lot more of. I really enjoyed it. And I do plan on doing a lot more of it. Okay. Um, which is kind of funny because I'm dyslexic. But when you look at my dyslexia, it's not that I can't read, it's the amount of time it takes me to comprehend what I read. Right? You know, it's it. like I'm two and a half, three X 
what it takes a normal I'm, I'm person to I'm glad you like read. writing. I, I hate I hate writing. I I uh, I generally write in like a bulleted format. That's that's why I think I think in bulleted lists. Um, so I generally write in a bulleted format. And when I'm writing, so when I wrote the adversity and success book, and when I wrote uh, the uh, UNS handbook, I, I, I really wrote them in bulleted lists. So that's what I did with that yeah. originally. Is I and would then, originally write in bulleted lists, and then I come back and turn and it. And then into, I would take the bullets and I would expand out on them, but I would jump from bullet to bullet it. all the time. But I, I didn't enjoy the process at all. So I, I definitely won't. I don't see myself writing because I love it. I think it'll look for me. It's always going to be based on whether I think there's a need. Like, is this something I should? Right. This is one of the things that I struggle with. I was going to bring up earlier. You know, there's a lot of one of the challenges we face right now in our industry is there are a lot of people who don't know what they're talking about completely on a subject who are representing as if they do. Um, oh, easy. <laughs> yeah, there, there's a lot of people out there who are. Um, you know, either hijacking, I don't know, I, I, you know, whether it's oppor opportunism or wait, or maybe it's good faith. Maybe it's just, they think they're, you know, they're, they're, you know, it, and right now I think there, there, the there are a bunch of them that come to mind when you mention that. And some of them, I know it's in good faith and other ones, I know it's purely opportunistic. Yeah. And, and the challenge is, is, is you know, confusing the market or, I mean, yeah, it, it's, it's, we saw this when you, you know, you talk about industry four and, you know, people say buzzwords. Part of the reason a word becomes a buzzword is because you'll have 20 different people using it, using a different definition for yep. the word, right? But they want to use the word because the word carries some type of weight. It gets proper SEO reaction, whatever it is. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't help the consumer when you have 20 different people using a different definition yep. for the same same term. I've always been of the belief if you can't explain a topic in other words than what you learned it in, right. you don't know the topic. That's right. Yeah. That's exactly it. Yeah. All right. Like, if all you can ever do is regurgitate what you were exactly taught, you really don't have a depth of knowledge. If you can't, I, I always say this, I, I like that. It, it's what I'm really looking for when I ask somebody, what is give me this term. I'm looking for them to convert that into an, an analogy. You know, it, because analogizing a term requires that you understand how it's used. Requires a deeper level of thought. Right, deep, deeper level of thought, right. If they don't use any analogies to explain it, then they probably have a, a, a bit, a, only a basic understanding of the term or the concept, um, which then tells me, you know, not to, you know, listen to pretty much anything they have to say. But, um, Right now, I really worry. Uh, I do worry. There's two two things going on in our community right now that I that are cause for um, to celebrate. The level of fluency out there in when it comes to digital transformation, industry four, industrial and other things. Fluency has never been higher. Okay. Uh, there are lots of people out there who have a real, I mean, I see this in the, in the Discord server all the time, mm -hmm. 
where somebody will ask a question, they might tag me in that question, but I don't see it. Somebody else comes in and answers it, and they nail the fucking answer. They get it. You know, Dave Schultz constantly is getting, he basically answers almost exactly the way I would answer it. There's many times where Dave is like, or Mario, or Rick, or, you know, there's a lot of people in the community. There's a lot of really... A L- lot of really sharp, sharp people, people, you know. In that, in that Discord. Yeah, I, Matt, I, I wish I had more time and for it, but I don't really even get to look at it anymore. Yeah, the, the level of fluency is really, really high. There's a lot of people out there who really do know what they're talking about. But at the same time, it seems like for every one person we add that's got really high level of flu- uh, fluency, we're adding three who are just trying to jump on a bandwagon and they're trying to represent that they know things they don't know. And that, and I, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it's like that in every industry, but it's, it's, it's definitely something we have to take into consideration. You know, the reason I'm, again, promoting your book the way I am is because I believe that this, if the more people who read this, the more fluency we're going to have the higher level of clarity, right? So the, be- the better the discussions we can have after the fact. Agreed. So if you haven't read it, read it. Um, st- I, I can't stress it enough. Jason, you did a phenomenal job on this, man. And I really would love to see the second book that basically takes these same chapters but then does application. And I really look forward to the, the AI book coming forward. Any other? I think I'm going to have you probably on the second round of proofreaders for the AI. Okay, love to. Love to do it, man. Because the one yeah. thing I learned about getting the proofreaders not everybody that proofreads is actually worth having proof to proofread it right most of them just want to read it because they it's like hey i'm gonna get up what are you up to what are you up to what are you what <laughs> what, what, what what can i take from like yeah. uh i think that book went through roughly 30 35 different proofreaders i only got really good feedback from uh less than 10 of them Okay. Most of it was no feedback. Most of it was I like was, it. was no no feedback. Right. I like it. Yeah. It's like, well, I like it doesn't give me guidance. Right. Right. I, I'm not looking for somebody to tell me I've I've done it right. I'm looking for somebody to tell me how do I make it better. Yeah. If I had proofread this, this, it, I would have. This, this is an iterative yeah. approach. Iterative approach, right? Yeah. <laughs> if I had proofread it, I would have given you the feedback I I just gave you. Yeah. I, um, yeah. I. And by the way, I honestly think I'm going to use your book as a model for how other people should write books, um, especially introductions. Like, you know, this is, the, this is the first in a longer story, right? I would, I'm definitely going to use your book as an example of how it should be done. All right. Well, with that, Jason, yeah. thanks for joining us. Hey, uh, like, subscribe, comment down below. If you got questions for Jason, leave them down below or reach out to him LinkedIn, right? That's yeah, the best place to get a hold of Best place to get me. And... Um, We will definitely have you back. Um, Thanks again for watching, and we'll see you in the next one.